Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I am a little nervous today because I have Dr. Omar Minwala on today's episode, and I'm a little starstruck. I've admired his work from afar for a long time and read many of his articles. I'm so impressed with his work and very humbled that he agreed to come on today's episode. Dr. Omar Minwala is a licensed psychologist and a clinical sexologist who specializes in sex addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, patterns of infidelity, and relational abuse. He completed his postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Minnesota Medical School program in human sexuality. In 2009, he founded the Institute for Sexual Health, the acronym ISH, which provides services related to his innovative model of treatment for compulsive abusive sexual relational disorders. The acronym for that is CASRD and sex addiction induced trauma. He has been a leader in challenging the traditional concept of co-sex addiction and instead advocating for a trauma approach in how partners and spouses of sex addicts are understood and treated. He also advocates for understanding sexual acting out as a form of relational and domestic abuse. Welcome, Dr. Manwala. I am jumping up and down about your developing model called Compulsive Abusive Sexual Relational Disorder, and the acronym again is CASRD. Can you explain that term and how you came up with it? Sure. So Compulsive Abusive Sexual Relational Disorder, I know that's a mouthful. Um, But it's meant to be a diagnostic term that expands beyond the traditional definitions of sex addiction. And so let's just back up and really review how sex addiction is typically defined. And also the term compulsive sexual behavior is another diagnostic term that also is similar to sex addiction. So some professionals use compulsive sexual behavior. Some professionals use sex addiction. Either of those terms are usually used to describe a disorder related to sexual behavior where there's a lack of control and there's significant negative consequences. And in my working with sex addicts and people struggling with compulsive sexual behavior for many years, I realized that there was also another disorder that wasn't being named and wasn't part of the traditional definitions. And that was that there were often, if the person's in a relationship, patterns of interpersonal abuse and an integrity disorder. And what I mean by that is having a deceptive, compartmentalized sexual or relational life or reality while you're in a relationship or in a family. Another way of saying that is having a secret sexual life or world while you're in a relationship or a family is in and of itself a form of abuse. In many ways, it's a type of sociopathic behavior. And what I mean by that is it's a selfish worldview where often the welfare of others is not being respected. There's often a lack of remorse or guilt and there's often an externalization of blame or responsibility. And it's in essence a long-term pattern of disregarding and violating the rights of others, particularly family members and your intimate partner. While sex addiction and compulsive sexual behavior really focus on the sexual behaviors themselves, they usually don't have a clear diagnosis or labeling of the integrity, abuse, and relational conduct problems. So 
the term compulsive abusive sexual relational disorder is simply my way of trying to spell it out clearly. So the compulsive part is referring to the sexual behavior part. The abusive part is referring to the patterns of relational abuse and integrity problems. And then the term sexual relational is just specifying exactly what we're talking about, which is sexual and relational behavior. It's a developing model. And at this point, I feel like it's really important to have a term that is very clear in spelling out exactly what are the two parts of the problem, which is the sexual part and also the abuse part. This is my favorite model that I have come across thus far in my experience. I talk with many people who say that adding the label abuse to the situation is going too far. It's making it way more serious than it needs to be. And for me, I'm thinking without the label of abuse somewhere in the discussion, it does not correctly express the severity of the situation and what victims are going through and what their experience is. So can you explain from your perspective how sex addiction problems are a form of domestic abuse? Well, like I've just started to name, putting the sexual behavior aside, the minute somebody has a deceptive, compartmentalized sexual life or sexual or relational reality or life that's being deceptively compartmentalized and they're in an intimate relationship or in a family system, that in and of itself is a form of abuse. It's abusive in many ways. First of all, in order to maintain a deceptive reality, one has to tell all sorts of lies and has to by nature be dishonest in the relationship. So there's often patterns of lying or lying by omission. There's often partial truths. One of the most abusive aspects of having a deceptive, compartmentalized sexual life is that there's often a lot of intentional manipulation of the partner's reality, which is sometimes referred to as gaslighting, which often can be very damaging in terms of eroding and hurting her relationship with her gut instincts. Usually somebody's gut instincts can detect that there's something going on, whether the person becomes conscious of it or not. Usually our gut instincts are somewhat aware. And in terms of gaslighting, if she confronts or brings something up and then the abuser or the sex addict is intentionally manipulating her away from that truth and getting her to ignore her gut instincts. That's very damaging to her gut instincts, which is a very important survival mechanism that we all need. We all need a good relationship with our gut instincts. So this intentional psychological manipulation of a partner, sometimes over many years, can be extremely damaging to a partner's gut instinct and her ability to use that to survive and make good decisions. Even just lying in a relationship is abusive. So if you have years and years of lying and maintaining a secret world while pretending to be honest in a relationship or in a family, that in and of itself is very damaging. There's also the erosion of integrity in the relationship and whether the person knows about the secret sexual world or not. The fact that there is a deceptive reality is already eroding and hurting the possibility for integrity to even exist in the relationship or in the family. And integrity is a very fundamental, basic 
attribute of a healthy relationship or a healthy family. So if somebody's chipping away or eroding the integrity of that system, then there's a lot of symptoms that can slowly start to emerge. And the chance for healthy integrity to even exist is corrupted and eroded over time. And then there's also other types of harms and other types of abuses. For example, having a secret sexual life diverts attention away from the relationship and away from the family. So there's a lot of vital energy of nurturance and care, sometimes love, time, financial resources, emotional resources, sometimes sexual attention that's withdrawn from the relationship and it's going elsewhere. There can also be a lot of blaming the partner, sometimes explicitly. For example, if there's problems in the relationship or problems with sexuality, the perpetrator might blame her and make up reasons that she's either overweight or she's controlling or unattractive. And those aren't even really legitimate reasons. Those are just cover-ups and in a way to explain what's going on and blaming the partner when actually... The reason that those things are happening is that there's a secret sexual life going on. It's also sometimes taking huge risks in a relationship or in a family where, for example, someone might not have safe sex and then come home and have unsafe sex with their partner. So there's all types of risk-taking and potential harms that a person is potentially engaging in that could be really harmful or potentially harmful to the family, like legal consequences, STDs. There can also be, for example, acting out partners who become vengeful and start being violent or get on social media and start causing problems for the family or for the partner. So there's a lot of things about having a secret sexual life that are abusive. There are, and having lived through it, that's the best word that I have found to describe it. And I really appreciate your work. I think that ignoring that or downplaying it is so dangerous to victims and also does not help perpetrators face the reality of the consequences of their actions. Um, So I really appreciate that about your model. One other thing, because you brought up a really good point, which is some people feel like it's going too far. I was actually trained as a clinical sexologist. So part of my training was specializing in working with sexual offending and sex offenders. And in that work, it became really clear. And I think the standard of care when working with any type of abuse dynamic is one of the first things you learn in training is that language is very important and to use appropriate terms is very important. And so even though this isn't physical abuse and it may not be sexual offending, when there's emotional abuse or psychological abuse, as in this case in terms of what we're talking about, to not use the word abuse is actually really clinically inaccurate. I think most people who deal with perpetration of any kind know that it is extremely important to use appropriate language, to use appropriate terms, to not mince words. And there's no benefit in avoiding appropriate terms. I think a lot of sex addiction professionals have been trained from an addiction perspective and don't have actually a lot of training in abuse or 
in how to treat perpetration or perpetrators of any kind. And so I think there is a squeamishness and a tendency to consider using the word abuse as somehow overreaching or shaming the addict or demonizing the addict. And I think it's just appropriate care and extremely important. So just wanted to follow up on what you had mentioned about some people perceiving using the word abuse as going too far. Yeah, thank you. I think that or they would like me to hedge. They'd like me to qualify. Like in some cases, it can be abusive. At the very least, in all cases, he has abused his wife's trust at the very least. But that is at the very, 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 very least. For me, it seems appropriate in all cases to include the word abuse and include a discussion about abuse and in which ways his behaviors have been abusive to her and what the consequences of his abuse to her have been, like what she has suffered due to his behaviors. From my perspective, that's the only way that we can really protect women and help them get to safety from these abusive behaviors. Yeah. And just to follow up, if you're leaving the word abuse out, one of the main problems with that is that then it's not going to be treated. And so you're going to often have sex addicts or people dealing with compulsive sexual behavior who go for treatment. And this has been the tradition for the last 50 years. And the focus is simply on stopping the sexual behavior and helping them gain control. So for example, if there's a porn problem or a problem with prostitution or strip clubs, all the focus is on how do we get this person sexually sober, which is defined as how do we get this person to stop sexually acting out or going to strip clubs or prostitutes or what have you. The problem is this person could also have had years and years of hiding this and deception and gaslighting his partner and lying and manipulating. And none of that is really being clearly diagnosed. And hence, none of that is clearly treated with a real methodology. And so you often have many patients who are sexually sober or are working on stopping the sexual behavior, but they're continuing to have an integrity problem. They're continuing to be deceitful. They're continuing to lie. They're continuing to gaslight. And nobody's even mentioning or really bringing that into treatment as part of a treatment model. So it's not just using appropriate terms, but then those appropriate terms really then inform appropriate treatment. And without the terms, there's often no treatment. And so then you end up having an abuse problem that's going untreated. And then the second part of why that's so problematic is if you're not treating an abuse problem, then you're really ignoring the victims. And so then the victims aren't being recognized because the abuse isn't being recognized. It ends up being a very serious omission. One of the things that an expert told me was that the women who she sees are not identifying as being abused. So when they come in, they wouldn't describe themselves as abuse victims. And I mentioned to her that I didn't see that either. For seven years, I 
was attempting to really face what was happening in my life head on, not really understanding what was happening to me. And so I would not have described it that way at that time. What would you say to experts or therapists who say that? Well, she's not claiming she's abused. She's saying he's a good guy and he just needs help to get his porn problem under control. First of all, I would just say that in my experience, the minute I use the word abuse and explain it as emotional and psychological and explain exactly what I mean by that. I have never had a partner or spouse refute that or push that away. I actually quite the opposite. They usually start becoming a very emotional. They often break down and start crying. They feel extremely validated and they really resonate with that term. When I do bring up the term or the language, it often is extremely resonant with victims and partners and spouses. The other thing I will say about that is infidelity, cheating. We as a society, we don't view that as domestic abuse immediately at all. So we're all trained and we all are in some ways indoctrinated into the idea of normalizing that type of abuse. And it is still very difficult for people to immediately think domestic abuse when we're talking about cheating or infidelity or patterns of sexual acting out. That's also a big explanation, I think, of why maybe even victims themselves are not used to seeing those types of behaviors or dynamics as domestic abuse, because we've all been indoctrinated into a sort of perception of normalization. And part of that normalization is that when there is cheating or domestic abuse, people often either blame the partner or at least blame the relationship. And I've had many clinicians and even professionals that I respect immediately go into a it takes two to tango model. And that somehow, if there is infidelity or cheating or acting out, then it must be a sign that there's something going on in the relationship and blaming the relationship, which means also blaming the intimate partner or spouse. So there's a lot of biases. There's a lot of normalization of this type of abuse. And it's hard for everybody, professionals, victims, and perpetrators, to really get their head around the idea that this type of behavior is actually a form of domestic abuse. I think it's so dangerous to avoid the word abuse, because if women are educated about what abuse is and that it is happening to them, then it can help get them to safety. Whereas avoiding it uh, in many ways enables the abuse to continue. And for a woman who is abused, who is already confused, who is already being gaslit, who is already trying to figure out what's going on and can't really put her finger on it to just keep her in that confusion and that self-blaming or unable to really assess the truth of the situation. Part of the model that you're developing incorporates gender pathology, which I would like you to describe and explain to our listeners what you mean by gender pathology. The word pathology really means disease or disorder, usually something that deviates from a healthy or normal or efficient condition. So gender pathology simply means that there's some kind of disorder or disease in how somebody is manifesting their 
gender identity or their sense of themselves in terms of gender. And this would include like attitudes, ideas, beliefs, and behaviors that are related to being masculine or male or feminine or female. It really relates to my model and it really relates to this idea of compulsive abusive sexual relational disorders because in my work working with many, many men, there's many unhealthy societal scripts that boys and men are taught around how to view women, how to view marriage, around sexual entitlement, and that they're entitled to get their needs met at the expense of human rights. And all of these ideas are indoctrinated into concepts of masculinity that all men and boys are subjected to and taken to varying degrees. And so even men who don't see themselves necessarily as misogynists have often taken in a lot of these ideas passively just by being in society. It really relates to sexual acting out. What I found is many men are taught and many boys are taught that one way to increase their gender esteem or their sense of masculinity is to conquer, objectify, um, gain attention of women or girls. We're all familiar with notches on the bedposts. You know, the more notches you have, the more masculine you are, the more you're gaining masculine self-esteem. So when we look at men who are acting out, oftentimes part of what might be going on is it's a way of them temporarily inflating their gender esteem or their masculine sense of self-worth. Not a healthy way, but that's one of the drives for acting out is often a lot of men have gender wounds, a sense of inadequacy or impotence. Um, they don't feel like they have a lot of self-worth in terms of masculinity. And one way of coping or temporarily gaining gender esteem in an unhealthy way in terms of what they've been taught is to sexualize, conquer, gain the attention of women. So that's very related to the sexual acting out part, the concept of gender and gender pathology. The other part of the disorder, which is the abusive part, specifically having a deceptive compartmentalized sexual life, that's very much a male tradition and a norm. And that type of sexual entitlement to have a secret sexual life on the side is very much uh, encouraged in traditional masculinity and in terms of gender pathology. A lot of men encourage each other, give each other props. Very few boys are taught that having a secret sexual life is a form of abuse. And there's just not a lot of immediate knowledge around cheating as being a form of domestic violence. So like we were just talking about, we've all been brought up to kind of not view cheating or infidelity immediately as domestic abuse. And it's been very much normalized. And part of the way it's been normalized is in terms of how we define masculinity and how boys and men are brought up to absorb a certain amount of sexual entitlement and encourage deceptive compartmentalized sexuality a lot. Abuse experts say that the abuse has a control and an entitlement element. So for example, they're not abusive because they're angry, but they're angry because they're abusive. They're not losing control, but when they become abusive, they're actually 
trying to take control. That the impetus behind it is they've lost control, so they're trying to take control through lying or through a rage episode or through some other control mechanism, which I think is really interesting, the dichotomy between the two things, the dichotomy between an abusive episode that is spurred on by a man wanting to take control of the situation, and then he's lost control of his sexual behaviors. For example, he doesn't have the control to be able to not look at porn or something like that. Can you speak to that for a minute, that issue of entitlement and control in this scenario? What I'll start with is having a secret sexual world or life while you're in a partnership or in a family is immediately a form of dominance and control. It's a covert form of dominance and control because the abuser actually has information and is withholding intentionally information that they know that if their partner or family members knew, they would take certain actions to protect themselves and would respond in a way that advocates for their safety and their well-being. And so intentionally withholding that type of information from somebody is already a form of dominance and control and can give the abuser a sense of control and power just by having a secret sexual life that the family or the wife or the partner doesn't know about. And sometimes, whether it's conscious or unconscious, just having that secret sexual life does play a role in providing for the abuser a sense of control and power and dominance. And that might be part of the motivation in maintaining for many years even a secret sexual world. And sometimes it can be very explicit where in anger or in times of feeling powerless or feeling dominated in the relationship, I've had men tell me that the fact that they had a secret sexual life or had the ability to then go and act out actually gave them a sense of retribution or power or balancing of what they were struggling with in terms of power and control. Yeah, I think that's important to bring up too, understanding the dynamics of abuse and understanding the dynamics of power and control in that in that scenario. How do you see the treatment field evolving and do you have any concerns? One positive development is I started recognizing and researching trauma symptoms in terms of the partner or spouse of sex addicts in 2005. And for many years, I felt like I was really pushing uphill an idea that wasn't being really well-received, and there was a lot of pushback and a lot of politics. Around 2011, I started to see a shift where more and more people were recognizing that partners indeed do experience trauma and PTSD and complex PTSD. And so now I do see a positive trend towards challenging the codependency models to move away from those models and replace those models with a trauma sensitive or a trauma approach in dealing with the spouse of a sex addict. So that's actually positive. Uh, One concern I have is among professionals, there still seems to be a lack of rigorous 
understanding of what was actually so damaging about the COSEX addiction model and why the COSEX addiction and codependency models used alone are actually a form of victim blaming and why so many partners have been harmed by that. In many ways, it parallels what abusers often do in a defensive way. One common scenario for abusers is that they want to quickly say that they've learned what they've done is wrong and let's move on and let's put that up behind us and let's not talk about it. Let's not really reconcile ourselves with what happened and let's bury that in the past and move on. And I sort of feel like some professionals, because there is a movement and a growing number of professionals who have challenged codependency and co-sex addiction and now are moving towards a trauma model, are very quick to jump onto that trend and quickly change words on their website and say that they use a trauma model when they really haven't done that hard work of really reconciling the approach that they had used in the past, why that was harmful, really looking in themselves about what it was about them that contributed to their use of a damaging model and the harm that they may have caused patients. There's a lack of depth and rigor, I think, in that transition for many professionals, and that concerns me primarily because there's still a lot of partners who go for help and they're still actually being hurt by elements of the co-sex addiction. They're still having experiences clinically that feel like a form of victim blaming or insensitivity. And I think it's because prematurely professionals have started to say that they use a trauma model without fully understanding what that really means. And then because of that, they end up still perpetrating a lot of clinical mistakes and a lot of the old model sort of comes through still. And a lot of partners still feel that. One concern I have is that there's many professionals who are saying they use a trauma approach to treat partners and they actually are still using a codependency approach or a co-sex addiction approach or a hybrid that ends up still hurting partners. And so I think that's a very serious concern. I have that same concern. One professional wrote recently about me and this podcast and the things I say on this podcast and said, a very dangerous philosophy is being spread around that the women are merely victims. And he says he uses the trauma model, but I was thinking, well, we are, quote unquote, merely victims in this scenario, right? It's not that we're perfect unless you actually view someone who is a victim of abuse and a victim of betrayal as a victim. If you view them as some way responsible for what happened, then you're not able to get to the root of the trauma and not able to help them. So I really appreciate that I have those same concerns. I have one more concern, too, which is... Even among the trend to recognize that partners experience trauma and to treat them as trauma victims and survivors, there's still, even among the trauma professionals, a hesitation and a misunderstanding on how to clearly name the abuse, which takes us back to our original topic that we were talking about how as to how important it is to name for the addict that he is also potentially an abuser and to use both of those words 
when it's appropriate. And I find that there's a lot of professionals who are treating trauma who are still very squeamish and unclear about how to appropriately use the word abuse to describe the perpetration and to describe the treatment and their clinical understanding of the sex addict. And I think over time that'll change because they logically have to go hand in hand. If you're looking at the trauma and really understanding it, then the next question is, where is this trauma coming from and what's causing it? And the minute you ask that question, then you have to realize like that there's these patterns of abuse that are causing the trauma. It's not just discovery and discovering that there's a secret sexual world that causes trauma. That's one type of trauma. But the patterns of abuse, such as gaslighting or victim blaming or years and years of lying and deception, those often are causing a lot of trauma. And so I think over time, people will become, will be forced really to reckon with the idea that if we're recognizing trauma, then we have to recognize the abuse and they go hand in hand. But at this time, I still see a lot of well-intentioned trauma therapists who are trying to treat partners and still are refusing or timid about using the word abuse. And I don't think that that's very congruent at the, in the end. I started this podcast about the same time that the Me Too movement started and began to have some traction. So do you have any thoughts about the Me Too movement and how it intersects with what we're talking about today? The Me Too movement is helping society and our culture recognize and take more seriously violence towards women in general, particularly sexual violence and behavior towards women that is abusive. I think it has also raised awareness of how men abuse power and it allows us to see more clearly the role and pervasiveness of sexual entitlement, which goes right in line with my model in terms of gender pathology and how certain ideas around masculinity and how boys and men are indoctrinated into their way of thinking about women and sexuality and sexual entitlement and how that can lead to abuse. One important comment I will make about the Me Too movement is that there's often many victims in the discussions that go unnamed and unrecognized and are often living with their trauma and pain in silence. And what I mean by that is when we look at these high-profile cases of high-profile men who've been exposed now for whether it's sexual assault or sexual harassment or other forms of inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace, most of these men also have wives or have partners or have children or families. And so this means that while these men are engaging in all of this inappropriate and offending behaviors in the workplace, they're also engaged in a deceptive, compartmentalized sexual world that their primary partners and relationships don't know about or that their families and children don't know about. And that, according to my model, again, having a deceptive, compartmentalized sexual life is in and of itself a form of abuse. Not only are these men abusing 
women in the workplace, they're also domestic abusers in terms of having a secret sexual life and they're abusing their intimate partner and their family. So what we tend to focus on are the victims in the workplace, which is absolutely essential and legitimate. And that's actually a a great awakening for us to all have. But at the same time, when these men are exposed or we're talking about these workplace violations, I wish that we would also consider the intimate partner at home and the children and the families at home and also recognize that they potentially are victims of abuse and are probably hemorrhaging behind the scenes. And a lot of the spotlight often doesn't go towards them. And so I think that they legitimately should be named more. And I think over time, hopefully, when these cases come out in the news or we see a headline that we more readily think about the partner and spouse and the family and the children as well, and that they can also legitimately claim the hashtag me too. We are kindred spirits. <laughs> as you are saying these things, I am so grateful. These same issues have been in my thoughts and on my mind, and I've talked about them sometimes on this podcast, and I'm so grateful for you and your work and in advocating for victims of abuse in these situations and grateful to have your voice. Yes, I think we are kindred spirits in the agenda to get these ideas out more to help not only victims, but help perpetrators and help relationships and families and really help society. So I'm on board with that agenda for sure. I just wanted to maybe respond to the feedback, I guess, that you got around the word victim. And I think people, for many reasons, take a very negative stance towards that word. And I think it's so important clinically to be clear with our language. I think there's many times when it's absolutely important that we properly use the word abuse. And I think it's just as important that we properly use and understand the word victim. When there's a violation, when there is abuse, then there is victimization. And I think the beginning of any healing journey is to name that clearly and that that's really important for victims is to be able to have that named and for them to understand that. That's really different than somehow an agenda of keeping somebody in a victimized state or somehow wanting them to own a label that's stigmatizing that they should feel burdened by for the rest of their life and prevent healing from happening. Like that's not at all what the word victim should mean, but I feel like a lot of professionals immediately become suspicious or nervous about using the word victim appropriately. And I think that that's just as important as using the word abuse. I, too, have also been accused of perpetually keeping partners or wanting to keep partners in a victimized state, which is absolutely not the case. I had someone at a conference come up to me and she said, your podcast was the first time that I actually felt safe enough to define myself as a victim. And until I could do that, 
I didn't know what to do to get better. And so that feeling of defining the situation for what it is in order to make progress, in order to facilitate healing. Because if you somehow think you're part of the problem, and so you are trying to be more loving, and you're trying to be more forgiving, and you're trying to dress more sexy or whatever it is, and that's not really the situation, then you're going about your healing process the wrong way. And it won't take you to healing because you'll still be exposed to the abuse and the trauma. And so you can't move out of victim mode without recognizing that you are a victim. I think that's my feeling on it, but I'd never want women to say I am a victim. And so therefore I I'm doomed, right? I can't get to safety. I can't do anything about my situation, but they can use that as motivation to get themselves to safety. I absolutely agree. A lot of my model really advocates for that healing really comes from metabolizing reality. And the reality in these cases is there has been oftentimes significant victimization and abuse. So part of the healing has to be reconciling and metabolizing that piece of reality. And if that piece of reality is being ignored, then it will be very hard to heal. As an abuse victim, it is difficult to metabolize that. I never perceived myself as a victim. I am a strong, capable, smart woman. That's how I perceived myself. And so realizing what had happened to me was devastating to me. And also I felt so stupid thinking I didn't think I was this type of a person, but it also enabled me to set the boundaries that I needed to set to finally get to safety. The boundaries that I still maintain because my ex is choosing to continue to be abusive. So I still need to maintain those boundaries, but now I can feel the result of that in terms of the peacefulness that I feel in my home and my ability to heal now because I'm not continually being abused anymore is amazing. It enabled me to get the space that I needed to heal and move forward. I actually have not had a professional describe it the way I have genuinely felt about it the way that you have today. And so it gives me hope for professionals everywhere that they'll be able to see things from this point of view and protect victims. So thank you so much for coming on this episode, Dr. Manwala. If this podcast is helpful to you and you have the financial means, please make a recurring monthly donation. We suggest $10. This enables me to keep podcasting for free so that every woman in the world can listen and get the help that she needs. Another thing that helps women find this podcast is to rate it on your podcasting app, especially iTunes. Every single rating helps bump up our search engine rankings and helps women who are isolated find us. Make sure that you check out the fall Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule and also the suggested topics we have for individual sessions, although you can do any topic that you'd like with any one of our coaches. Go to btr.org for more information. And until next week, stay safe out there.